This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And this is the podcast where we talk about the coronavirus pandemic. Today, the mystery of COVID-19 taking twists and turns again. It's done this too much. One of the puzzles, not quite solved yet, is whether people can get reinfected after getting it in the first place. We'll explore two cases in the U.S. of possible reinfection, people who tested positive three months after their first test. It's a creepy virus. I don't like it. Here's a key to uh, running a successful business. Develop a coronavirus vaccine. You can make money even before you're allowed to distribute it. With schools closed throughout the country, parents are having a tough time figuring out how to make it work. Take care of the kids and then do their jobs. So what can they do? We have an idea if you can afford it. Hunger and not enough food. They've been a growing problem in the U.S. It's even worse now. We'll explain how some relief organizations are helping. The historian's going to have plenty to write about when it comes to 2020, the election, and in general. The pandemic has drastically changed how Joe Biden, President Trump, and others are campaigning. We will take a look. Let's get back to possible reinfections, and maybe we can solve this one. Dr. Dennis Carroll chairs the board of the Global Virome Project. Before that, he hunted pandemics. I like that. That sounds so like a romantic thing to do, hunt pandemics. He's my hero. Yeah. You know, he's out there trying to get them. Yeah, well, he hunted these things for the uh, U.S. Agency for International Development. Doctor, we, we seem to have maybe two different cases in two different parts of the country of people getting infected, then testing positive again months later. So what does this suggest to you? Well, uh, first off, the, the real take-home message from these conflicting reports is that after eight months, we're still learning more about this virus and really the area of, of does the virus provide immune protection? If you're infected and survive, um, are you protected against uh, future infections? And as you noted, we have these anecdotal reports showing up in different parts of the world and most recently in the United States. Uh, and we don't know. Uh, this is an area that is still being examined, still being studied, and there's a lot of uncertainty. But it is worth taking to note a couple of things. First off, we do know that a number of viruses, once you're exposed, you do get lifelong immunity. Influenzas, um, if you are exposed and infected to a particular influenza virus, you will have lifelong immunity against that. Um, but we also know that other coronaviruses like COVID-19, two of which are involved in the common cold, those viruses uh, provide really short-term immunity for about 30 weeks, which explains why every year um, we're challenged with the common cold. So the story about COVID-19, does it provide immunity or not, it's still an area that's uh, being explored. I think the real question is, will the vaccines that you made reference to a moment ago, will they provide uh, really an elevated of immunity for a prolonged period of time. And that's the one that we really need to understand. And can we get the vaccines to really pull that trick? Does any of this complicate that? Because I guess we have different theories, right? Or we can have some hypotheses about this, that either it, it lies dormant and then it can give you different symptoms later on, or you could get reinfected later on, or you have the antibodies fade and you come across 
it again, or maybe it's a different strain, and you know we can make a list of ten different theories right. here, or um, maybe it's a false positive test the first go round, and you actually had COVID the second time. All of those, in fact, are possibilities. Uh, so what we haven't had is the benefit of a very thoughtful, controlled uh, examination. And so the, the issue about whether or not someone who was infected and cleared, all that cleared means is that there's no more virus within the diagnostic detection um, zone. And it could be that there's still virus circulating uh, at a level that's too small for the diagnostic to detect it. And at some point in time, it's able to reestablish itself and reappear. That's a very plausible explanation for why uh, some of these reinfections uh, appear. The other is, of course, that uh, there may be very uneven across a global population. Some people will get infected and will mount a sustained immune response, but other people may provide a very weak immune response. And so you could see a really uneven pattern among a given population. All of that is really the point of uncertainty and really needs to be explored further. So I wouldn't draw any conclusions except to say there is as much mystery with this virus eight months into this pandemic uh, as it was almost at the beginning. And and therein lies uh, a really interesting kind of, you know, dilemma for everybody, because as you know, everyone's key question, I think, is when is this going to end? When do we have to stop wearing masks? When can we no longer have to worry about social distancing? But so much is unknown about this virus, and we keep getting surprised at every twist and turn, even if there is a vaccine in six months, seven months, whatever, by the time you kind of let everything play out and you really have a chance for all the doctors and researchers around the world to evaluate what is really going on, doesn't that mean that we're stuck with doing all the stuff we're doing for really quite some time? Uh, there, we're, this is not going to be an exit ramp we're going to hit anytime soon. Um, you know, even if we do get a vaccine that is highly efficacious, that is, it really generates an immune response, and it provides a long-term immune response, you've got several big challenges out there. One, getting enough of the vaccine out um, to really provide the level of protection. And secondly, um, people willing to accept the vaccine. And we know that there is a lot of misinformation that drives people to to actions that are not in their best, uh, you know, uh, advantage. So it's not just about the virus. There's a lot of issues out there that we have to deal with socially and politically um, that can further compound um, the problems that we have. So at least for this year, we're going to be continuing to deal with the challenges of, the, of this virus and be prepared as we move into the fall and winter season, which is a far more favorable period for a respiratory virus of this nature to be able to be spread human to human, we're going to be even more challenged. And what people really need to focus on is wearing masks, social distancing, and personal hygiene. The virus can't spread if we take those actions. And so it's really up to us, absent a vaccine, not to wait for the vaccine, but to take advantage of tools that we have right now that can really, in a significant way, 
uh, bring this pandemic under control. But we have to be prepared to wear a mask, wash our hands, and provide some common sense strategic social distancing. Yeah, do the things we know how to do. Dr. Dennis Carroll shares the board of the Global Virome Project. Dr. Thanks. Drug companies developing coronavirus vaccines are doing quite well right now. Moderna is already taking pre-orders on doses. Johnson & Johnson just sold 100 million doses of something that hasn't even been developed yet, and they've sold it to the U.S. government for over, ready for this one, $1 billion. I picked the wrong industry. Yeah. It's nice for the companies and their shareholders, but can and will they deliver? Dr. Jay Bhattacharya directs the Program on Medical Outcomes and the Center on the Demography and Economics of Health and Aging at Stanford Med School. So is it odd that a product that hasn't even been proven can sell like this? It's in some sense unprecedented, uh, and it's it's part of a, a policy, actually. It's not just the United States government. Many, many governments around the world have, have made that uh, they've made a bet. They've just said that if the vaccine does turn out to be effective, we want it to be immediately available uh, at scale to everyone who, who uh, you know, sort of to everyone who, who's at risk from COVID, which is basically everybody. Um, and, and so in order to avoid the delays that would happen if you, you wait to see if the vaccine is going to work, and then, then you ramp up manufacturing, months of delay, the, the, the decisions made again by the U.S. government, but also by other governments, to... Uh, Basically, uh, make that investment now, even before we know what the, the vaccine, whether the vaccine is going to work, or, 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 or uh, you know, have detailed information about it, such that if it does work, we're ready to go. If it doesn't work, we'll have lost the bet. We've lost a lot of money. I guess the wager is that waiting would end up costing more than just trying to produce all this right now. So if you do hit on something, you have it ready. Um, the prices you see, the money that's being spent, taxpayer dollars in a lot of cases, um, is it the right cost? I mean, I, I mean, of course, uh, in hindsight, we'll know for sure. Uh, if, it, if the vaccine turns out to work out and, and actually is efficacious and safe, then, then yes, it'll avoid a lot of really uncomfortable discussions about who should get the vaccine first, you know, inequality in vaccine distribution. All those issues would be ramped up to 11 if you if you uh, if you did if we had if we waited and, and the vaccine works and then we'd have that massive fight in a sense now we're saying but it, it, in a sense we're making we're paying these taxpayer dollars which are real it's real money um, in order to say let's avoid that fight down the line if it works in retrospect if it turns out it doesn't work then we'll look back and say gosh was it a good investment um, it's an unprecedented uh, an unprecedented policy but it's it's one that I think many countries around the world are making just just because of the scale of the epidemic and the, the potential benefit from the uh, from the vaccine if it, if it does work well so so now let me be incredibly optimistic which for me might be a symptom that I have covid something's what, wrong with yeah. them <laughs> what 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 if all of these different ones work I mean suppose they all I know there are different technologies involved, but these are all pretty big, responsible companies that one would hope know what they're doing. Suppose they all really work uh, and all this money has been invested and they're all ramping up and they're producing all this material. Uh, what do we do with a kind of wealth of vaccines? Wouldn't that be a great position to be in? Um, I think uh, what we'll learn from the studies is uh, potentially, I mean, obviously, we don't know what they're going to say yet. But that is that, that, that some of them work better for some populations than others. Maybe one works better for children. One works better for for adults. People, and we'll learn about safety profiles of the vaccines, so that it works. You know, if you have a certain conditions, you shouldn't take this vaccine, but it, you might be able to take the other one. So, if we're in that good position that you're talking about, 
potentially we'll, we'll be able to make nuanced clinical decisions about the right vaccine for you. Um, I mean, I think that would be a really, really good outcome because then, then we could tailor the vaccine that you get to your particular uh, health condition as opposed to just giving one vaccine for, you know, for everybody if, if only one ends up working. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford Medical School. Parents have a lot to handle right now. They have to work, obviously, but they, they also don't get a break from taking care of their kids because schools throughout much of the country remain closed. Balancing work while making sure your kids are behaving and learning online, well, that can be really difficult. Rosalind Prather is co-founder of Trusting Connection. It's a nanny agency. She talks to KRLD's Chris Summer about how parents can hire private teachers. We are a nanny agency traditionally, but we have to change and grow with the changing needs of parents. And right now, parents are really, really struggling with figuring out how to help educate their kids while simultaneously work. So we have private educators that can help families either part-time, full-time, or even last minute on a day when things you just need an extra set of hands. And parents are finding that really helpful. Who are the personnel here? Are they retired teachers or, you know, who's involved in, in the actual teaching in the private educator service? Well, the nice thing is it's an easy time to recruit because, truthfully, there are teachers. Just like there's families that aren't necessarily comfortable having their children in the classroom, there's also teachers, especially older ones, that are worried about transitioning back uh, and being physically present in school. And so some of those teachers are looking for a career change, so we are hiring some of those. Um, But also, um, you know, teachers that their workload is decreased, and so they just want to pick up some extra hours. Um, They are either state-certified teachers or have at least two years of experience in the classroom. I was very interested when I saw the terms pandemic pod and micro school. (laughs) Is that a, a situation where several families will get together and have that group of children educated by a private teacher? Yes. And in fact, I have one full swing right now at my house in Arizona. We, um, you know, basically parents are getting together with friends who have children of the same age and saying, let's get together and share the responsibilities, share the workload. So sometimes it looks like the kids rotating to a different house every day and each mom takes a turn being in charge of helping the children with implementing their curriculum and just gives moms that extra break. And the nice thing is, is when they share, maybe they can do also have a private educator helping and they can share the cost of that, which is awesome. It's a fascinating concept, and I'm so grateful for your time. Before we let you go, how do folks find out more information about Trusting Connections? On our website, TrustingConnections.com, there's a great deal of information, not just about our private educator services, but also about using our private nanny or sitter service when you just need a date night or an extra set of hands around the house, full or part-time, 24-7-365. Rosalind, thank you for the time. Stay well. That is Rosalind Prather, and again, her organization, Trusting Connections. More and more people are going to bed hungry now. Fortunately, there are relief groups and food banks that are helping. One of them is called Phil Abundance. It's in Philadelphia. Sarah Hertz is the organization's senior vice president. She talks to KYW's Matt Leon about the increasing problem and what can be done to try and stop it. People are tired but determined to go on. The challenge is figuring out going on until when, I think, which is something that everyone is trying to figure out. But we have seen a huge demand for food from our 350 member agencies. 
And we also entered into an additional partnership with the city of Philadelphia and other partners to make sure people in the city were fed. And that was an additional 40 sites to our workload. So I would say all the stops have been pulled out for months and we don't know when we'll be able to put them back in. It is now becoming a bit of normalcy and we are trying to plan ahead. We're trying to think about what happens when the rent and moratorium ends, what happens when the $600 checks go away, how many more people is that going to be seeking food and needing the food that we have to offer them. And also logistically, where's that food coming from? That's been an enormous challenge for us. Let's just take toilet paper or the bag of rice that you were looking for in the supermarket in March and April and May, and you weren't able to get that. Well, that affected everybody. And we were equally taxed to be able to find the kinds of food that, um, that people need so desperately here. We distributed nearly 13 million pounds of food between March 1st and May 31st. That is an 83% increase in the same time last year. I I think that's a a really impressive, uh, sadly impressive figure for us. And we believe we will distribute 30 million pounds at least by the end of this year, which is an awful lot of food for us. You talk about trying to plan and you mentioned as we're recording this negotiations going on for what kind of unemployment federal help continues. Uh, But those eviction and foreclosure moratoriums are very much in play. Can you even get your head around from a planning purpose what the worst case scenario could be if everything, let's just say everything goes away, they don't come to an agreement? I, I, I can't even really comprehend it. I don't think we can comprehend it either because we kept thinking it was the worst and it wasn't. If you think about, we are 50% of our agencies are still reporting that they need more food than we're currently able to provide for them. The food itself is going up in price 30% at least. So it takes more donor money to buy the same amount of food, which is another challenge. We see uh, 40% of people coming to food banks have never been to a food bank before. So those numbers are significant and they're daunting in and of themselves right now. I don't know how much higher they're going to go. We're just talking about things like how much food can we buy now and make sure we have in our warehouses in case we have similar challenges to the distribution supply that we had before. So we are actually purchasing more dry goods than we would previously pre-COVID have purchased. Uh, Pre-COVID, we really spent um, a lot of time getting donated food or purchasing what we would call, um, you know, fresh, just fresh fruits and vegetables for people and dairy. And now our agencies are really asking us to get dry shelf-stable foods. So pasta sauce, canned fruits and vegetables, you know, juices. So our model is really changing in order to meet the demand. The national conventions for the Democrats and Republicans have always been hype machines for their presidential candidates. They always get some kind of bump out of them, except, well, this year. Both parties say their conventions are going virtual. 
Joe Biden won't even head to uh, Milwaukee to formally accept the Democratic Party's nomination. You're going to get a knock on the door, somebody saying, hey, have you voted yet? No, do not come to my door. I'm not answering. (laughs) Elaine K. Mark is director of the Center for Effective Public Management at Brookings. She's been a member of the Democratic National Committee and the DNC's Rules Committee since 1997. Things are changing, no doubt. Uh, Back to the conventions, though, being held virtually, Elaine. Does anybody get that bump this year? Well, that's hard to say whether anyone will get a bump or not. I mean, uh, I think both parties will now try hard to do a terrific television show um, in lieu of their four nights of convention. Um, I'm sure they will each attempt to have a very, very well-produced acceptance speech by President Trump and by uh, former Vice President Biden. So we'll see how those go. Uh, Those might give the, you know, those might give you a bump. Uh, One of the things to bear in mind is that, frankly, conventions have turned into television shows anyway. Long before COVID-19 happened, um, at about 8 o'clock Eastern time in uh, these conventions, everybody got really serious, the hall got really quiet, and the the two political parties tried to put their best foot forward. So we've we've been, as political parties, both parties are used to producing a TV show, and, and that's what they're going to do this year. Do you think, though, that because of the unique circumstances of the entire world finds itself in because of, of the pandemic, that maybe having no convention or no real sort of, uh, you know, convention in the traditional sense of the of the terms, maybe it doesn't matter now. I mean, maybe people just have made up their minds uh, those who are going to vote for Joe Biden will vote for Biden. Those who are going to vote for the president will vote for the president. Those who haven't made up their mind, some of them will, some of them won't. Some people are hopeless. So it, maybe it doesn't matter. Well, you're, you, you've got a good point here, but particularly when there's an incumbent president running. Because in every democracy, we see the same thing. When the head of state, being a prime minister or president, is running for re-election, the election is about them. It's not about the other party. It's a, it's a referendum on them. And I think a lot of people now know what they think of Donald Trump, for better or for worse. And I'm not sure that he can do anything to change that. Um, and I think Biden just has to continue to be an, an acceptable alternative. And um, we'll see what happens. Yeah. How much does he really have to do then? Because it's not like you can go hold a rally. And there is a crowd out there saying, you know what, Joe, and, and the president makes fun of this. He's not literally in his basement all the time, but they said, stay in your basement, let Mr. Trump do all the talking, (laughs) and he can dig himself a hole. Yeah, he's as as I've said to Betty, Joe Biden has done pretty well from his basement, so I don't know why why he should leave. (laughs) You know, uh, the president today sent up a kind of, what I interpret as a trial balloon, that he might give his acceptance speech uh, at or in front or something in relation to the White House. Um, That is also sort of unprecedented, is it not? I mean, don't most presidents treat the White House as kind of sacrosanct and supposedly beyond parochial politics? Yeah, that, that, that would be unprecedented and I think would not do the president any service. Um, And in fact, it might be illegal. Because, for instance, when the president, the the White House is government property. You're not supposed to campaign on government property. Um, 
And for instance, when the president uses Air Force One to go do a campaign rally, um, the campaign itself has to reimburse the government for the cost of Air Force One. Most people don't know that. But there's very strict rules about reimbursing the government for the cost of using that aircraft. And, of course, for security reasons and stuff, you can't have the president of the United States riding on a campaign plane sometimes on Air Force One other times. They have to go on Air Force One. But the campaigns do reimburse them. Similarly, um, you are not allowed to make fundraising phone calls or to do fundraising from the premises of the White House. It's federal property. Um, the congressmen are not allowed to raise raise money from their offices on Capitol Hill. They have to actually go to a campaign office um, and do their fundraising calls and their fundraising planning. So um, there's a lot of precedent that says you cannot do politics on federal property. So I can't imagine how the president would even think of giving an acceptance speech from the White House. That's Elaine K. Mark, directs the Center for Effective Public Management at Brookings. Now, if you are a car racing fan and if you are planning a trip to Indianapolis in a few weeks, forget about it. Stay home, watch TV, maybe take a walk in the park. The Indy 500 is going to be held without any fans uh, because of the pandemic, of course. The race is set for August 23rd after having been postponed from Memorial Day weekend, which is its usual slot. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway in June announced the race would be held with fans but capped at 25% capacity. However, a rising number of cases in central Indiana has now led to this change. Watching the baseball games, more of the people are buying those cardboard cutouts because the seats are slowly starting to fill up. Yeah, and you know, I don't know why some people think it's so strange. I mean, I've, haven't you gone to a game where you sat next to a dummy? Very nice. It's good. Anyone who roots for the other team. Yeah. Thanks for listening to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.